Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. Pleased to be bringing you what we call the American view of law and government. There is a God, the creator God of the universe, and he is the one who gives us our rights. They're God-given rights. And the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights. That's what our foundational document says, the Declaration of Independence, and that's what this form of government was designed to accomplish. And quite clearly, we are far from that goal today, and as a result, we are losing our liberties in, in terms of actually being able to exercise them. Well, I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, Senior Instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and my two wonderful collaborators on this Friday morning are Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom, who defends the God-given right to keep and bear arms. By the way, Mike G. has a show just before our 7 a.m. Friday mornings, Mike G. in the morning. The law matters, so I encourage you to tune in uh, and check out Mike's show on Friday mornings. Well, we're in this series we're calling The Dirty Dozen. That is 12 Supreme Court cases that... Uh, basically went the wrong direction is, is what we're arguing. They they made decisions and we've tried to choose those cases that have made really monumental decisions that have had consequences far beyond just the parties to the case that came in before the Supreme Court. And and these have been some of these have been awful, you know, disastrous ones like Dred Scott and so forth, saying that uh, African Americans uh, don't have any rights, uh, constitutional rights and so on. So some of them have been disastrous and some of them have been overturned, going in the right direction. But many of these cases still have a great deal of bearing upon what's happening in our country today. And so it's important for we, the citizens, to understand these cases, to understand the departure that these cases represent from the constitutional standard. That is what, if we were to poll our founders say, James Madison, what did, what did you mean by this? And, and uh, hey, hey, Thomas Jefferson, what did you think about this? So if we look at our our founders and asked them what their view was regarding these cases. That's what we're attempting to do here in this series we're calling The Dirty Dozen. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us our next case, uh, Chevron case, a very interesting Chevron Vehicle uh, Natural Resources Defense Council. Well, Chevron's official site has this message for the public. What's on the horizon? The answers lie beyond the roads we know. We recognize that energy demand is growing, and the world needs lower carbon solutions to keep up. At Chevron, we're working to find new ways forward through investments and partnerships in innovative solutions, like renewable natural gas from cow waste, hydrogen fuel transportation, and carbon capture. We may not know just what lies ahead, but it's only human to search for it. That hardly sounds like an evil contaminator, but are those comments a reaction to the Supreme Court's opinion in Chevron USA versus Natural Resources Defense Council in 1984? The Natural Resources Defense Council has as its mission, NRDC works to safeguard the earth, its people, its plants and animals, and the natural systems on which all life depends. Its website adds, we combine the power of more than 3 million members and online activists with the expertise of some 700 scientists, lawyers, and policy advocates across the globe to ensure the rights of all people 
to the air, the water, and the wild. What are some of the political positions taken by the Natural Resources Defense Council? They certainly oppose offshore drilling for oil, but we get a better sense for their orientation from their statement about COVID-19. Together with our partners, we're calling on governors across the nation to declare a moratorium on water shutoffs during the crisis. We're keeping an eye on which communities are hardest hit by the crisis and elevating these disparities in our advocacy. We're working internationally to strengthen wildlife protections to prevent future pandemics. And we're demanding that federal leaders provide stimulus packages to provide relief for people, not polluters, as well as smart investments in public health and environmental safeguards. Finally, we're keeping a watchful eye on policy proposals to ensure that efforts to address the COVID-19 crisis today do not make the climate crisis worse tomorrow. Let's look at some of these statements in greater detail. We're working internationally to strengthen wildlife protections to prevent future pandemics. Yes, there's the solution to protecting humanity from transmittable disease, protect wildlife. Here's another thought. And we're demanding that federal leaders provide stimulus packages to provide relief for people, not pollsters, not polluters, as well as smart investments in public health and environmental safeguards. There's another answer. Shut down economies and create stimulus money out of thin air so that we can politically, uh, so that the politically connected may be rewarded at the expense of the politically unconnected. Meanwhile, ignore that the inflation that is created by this fiat money affects the poor disproportionately. And the final thought. We're keeping a watchful eye on policy proposals to ensure that efforts to address the COVID-19 crisis today do not make the climate crisis worse tomorrow. Should we be surprised that this organization sees not just a climate crisis today, but that everything we might do to combat infectious disease might have a negative impact on the global climate? Here is the Natural uh, Resources Defense Council's position on energy. NRDC accelerated the shift from fossil fuels to clean energy when we pressed the U.S. government to adopt the first ever national limits on carbon pollution from power plants. We promote policies that make our cars, buildings, appliances, and everyday gadgets more efficient. We help communities fight dangerous fossil fuel extraction operations in their backyards. And we collaborate with other countries to promote a global vision for and an accelerated transition to a clean energy future. NRDC's recommended policies would have the United States follow the European model, which may create a severe crisis, energy crisis during the winter of 2022 and 2023. So let's look at the case background and the Supreme Court opinion. This is Wikipedia's summary of the case. In 1977, the U.S. Congress passed a bill that amended the Clean Air Act of 1963. The United States uh, Comprehensive Law re Regulating Air Pollution. 
The bill changed the law so that all companies in the United States that plan to build or install any major source of air pollutants were required to go through an elaborate new source review process before they could proceed. The bill did not precisely define what constituted a source of air pollutants, and so the Environmental Protection Agency formulated a definition as part of implementing the changes to the law. The EPA's initial definition of a source of air pollution covered essentially any significant change or addition to a plant or factory, but in 1981, it changed its definition to be simply a plant or factory in its entirety. This allowed companies to avoid the new source review process entirely if, when increasing their plant's emissions through building or modifying, they simultaneously modified other parts of their plant to reduce emissions so that the overall change in the plant's emissions was zero. The Natural Resources Defense Council, an American nonprofit environmental advocacy organization, then filed and ultimately lost a lawsuit challenging the legality of the EPA's new definition. It is not who won or lost a case that qualifies it for the Dirty Dozen Award, but the precedent that the case had and its longer-term implications. So let's do an analysis of the opinion. Let's go to the U.S. Supreme Court's website, Justia, to gain an understanding of the primary holding of the court in the case of Chevron USA versus Natural Resources Defense Council. A government agency must conform to any clear legislative statements when interpreting and applying a law. But courts will give the agency deference in ambiguous situations as long as its interpretation is reasonable. This sounds a little like Napoleon's pronouncement in George Orwell's Animal Farm. As we may recall, Napoleon was the dominant pig on the farm when he stated, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. The first part of this holding is so obvious that it need not have been stated. A government agency must conform to any clear legislative statements when interpreting and applying the law. It is the second part that is so outrageous, but courts will give the agency deference in ambiguous situations as long as its interpretation is reasonable. What does it mean to give a governmental agency deference? The idea that some people are superior to others comes down to us in history, but it was very pronounced in feudal times. Let us say that a number of peasants were working on a road and the lord of the manor came speeding by in his horse-drawn carriage, splashing muddy water all over the peasants. In spite of the fact the peasants had been harmed and certainly humiliated, they were expected to doff their caps in a salute to the lord. That is just one way in which deference was to be given by the peasant to his lord. The idea of deference was challenged on the North American continent when the newly formed United States fought for their independence from Great Britain. Deference continued to remain as a way of life for Great Britain and continental Europe until the French Revolution, when enough aristocrats lost their heads to allow class deference to go out of favor. Let's look at the significance of Marbury versus Madison, 
the first case that we, we looked at in this series because it relates to what we're uh, exploring today. It is time to revisit Marbury versus Madison, that early Supreme Court opinion that asserted that the power of the court to strike down legislation that otherwise met the requirements of Article 1, Section 7 of the United States because the legislat legislation violated other provisions of the Constitution or federal legis or legislation that was made in pursuance thereof. It is obvious that if Congress passed legislation that banished the ownership of guns by citizens, that would violate the Second Amendment, which states, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Let's create an extreme example of congressional delegation to make the point that, based upon Marbury versus Madison, the Supreme Court of the United States might declare legislation unconstitutional beyond these obvious cases. This artificial legislation states, all powers of the Congress are hereby delegated to the do-good agency of the executive branch. We would expect the Supreme Court to step in and cry foul. We are now mentally positioned to consider the concept of ambiguous congressional legislation. Ambiguous is defined. One, doubtful or uncertain, especially from obscurity or indistinctness. Two, capable of being understood in two or more possible senses or ways. Either definition indicates that the legislation is deficient and should be struck down. This brings us to the heart of Chevron USA opinion. Why wasn't the legislation struck down because it was ambiguous? Why assume that unelected public officials working in an executive branch organization of questionable constitutionality, since there is nothing in the Constitution that allows the federal government to set pollution standards, are capable of making more intelligent and more disinterested decisions than the citizenry? Let's look at the Supreme Court opinion and its implications. The Sixth Justice Unanimous Supreme Court opinion was written by Justice John Paul Stevens. Justices Marshall, Rehnquist, and O'Connor took no part in the consideration or decision of the case. First always is the question whether Congress has directly spoken to the precise question at issue. If the intent of Congress is clear, that is the end of the matter. For the court, as well as the agency, must give effect to the unambiguously expressed intent of Congress. If, however, the court determines Congress has not directly addressed the precise question at issue, the court does not simply impose its own construction on the statute. Rather, if the statute is silent or ambiguous with respect to the specific issue, the question for the court is whether the agency's answer is based on a permissible construction of the statute. The precedent that has arisen out of this case is called the Chevron deference. It seems to be the exception to this nation's principle of justice that a defendant is considered innocent until proven guilty. In any action involving a federal agency, both parties, plaintiff and defendant, can be assumed guilty until proven innocent if a federal agency is the other party. 
Cornell's Legal Information Institute relates this concerning federal administrative hearings. Administrative hearings are the proceedings conducted by administrative law judges for disputes involving the regulatory jurisdiction of an executive agency. Administrative hearings resemble judicial proceedings in many ways with, with uh, there being pre-trial matters, complaints, presentation of opposing arguments and evidence, and finally, uh, and a final judgment. However, administrative hearings usually have more flexibility in procedure and involve less time than a judicial proceeding. Further, administrative law uh, at ALIs uh, always rule on questions of uh, fact and questions of law. And while they are entitled to one, a party may proceed without a lawyer. After the administrative hearing, the parties often submit briefs summarizing their arguments before the ALI makes their, uh, their ruling. Even the ruling may involve some flexibility where the ALI may seek the party's response to the decision before making it final. The determinations of an ALI may be appealed potentially even to a federal judicial court. However, essentially, every agency has its own appellate processes of review that must be followed before someone can access the federal courts. And sometimes in large agencies, the agency's internal review process can be quite extensive. The Legal Information Institute adds this about administrative judges. Administrative law judges, uh, not administrative judges, are executive judges for official and unofficial hearings of administrative disputes in the federal government. Because they only hear administrative law issues as designated in the Administrative Procedure Act of 1946, administrative law judges are considered part of the executive branch, not the judicial branch, and ALIs are appointed by the heads of the executive agencies. Given the broad scope of administrative law, ALIs participate in many different topics and for many different agencies, such as the Social Security Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the U.S. Postal Service. The determinations of an ALI may be appealed potentially even to a federal judicial court. ALIs do not serve the same role as administrative judges. Administrative judges are directly hired by the agencies and are subject to their, their employment rules and benefits, unlike the independent ALI judges. The ordinary citizen can be faced with a large, complex bureaucracy. Given that administrative judges are directly hired by the agencies conducting a review, effectively, those judges are also prosecutor and jury. The citizen should be treated more equitably by an administrative law judge, but that judge's independence is only relative, being a member of the executive branch. It is not until the citizen has successfully appealed to a federal district court that the citizen gains the protections of the judiciary to include a trial by jury. But there is a hitch. To reach this level and have standing, the citizen will find it necessary to demonstrate actual, not potential loss. Prior to Chevron USA, 
the federal bureaucracy could be a formidable opponent for the ordinary citizen. Subsequent to that, the uphill inclined in seeking um, justice has become significantly steeper. We seem to be moving back to a feudal system in which the federal lord cares little if he splashes us with mud while warning us, be sure to doff your cap, you worthless peasant. <laughs> There's a vivid picture of what we're facing. Thank you, Phil. And I appreciate particularly your, your pointing out that the, this whole the result of this Chevron case and you know this precedent called Chevron deference uh, means that we, the citizens, have a much, much steeper road to climb to try to get justice in, in, in the federal government. And the, the problem here appears to be this whole idea of administrative law, which uh, the Chevron case is a huge piece of this uh, administrative state. And the administrative state, the problem is it's not power that we people have delegated to the government because it's the, as you rightly point out, it's the executive branch, these administrative law courts and law judges, they're part of the executive branch. They're not part of the judicial branch and they're not part of the legislative branch. So it, it appears that what we have here is a blurring and perhaps even even an erasure of the lines separating the powers of the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch, giving far more power to the executive branch than is warranted. And we need to remember, our founders understood this danger. This is not, not something new, not something they couldn't foresee. Uh, they understood this danger so clearly that they stated the solution right there in Article 1, Section 1 of our Constitution. This, that's right after the preamble. The very first words of our Constitution following the preamble are these. All legislative powers herein granted, shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. That's Article 1, Section 1. All legislative power. So if uh, all legislative power is given to Congress, how much remains to the uh, judicial branch? Well, zero. How much remains to the executive branch? Same answer, zero. Simple math. If all legislative power is granted to Congress, none belongs to the judiciary. They cannot make law. They must not legislate from the bench. bench. And, and likewise with the executive. They can't make law, nor can any of their agencies make law. And that seems to be the basic problem here with uh, the Chevron uh, v. Natural Resources Defense Council is that it's granting, even though you might look at the result and say, okay, yeah, the, the company was the company got a good good outcome for them and, and their situation here. But really, the, the problem is the precedent it established that said that these uh, agencies really have essentially law-making power. Uh, they can't create the initial law. But wherever the law might be vague or, or uncertain, indeterminate, and so forth, that the decision that is that is come to by, in this case, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, the decision come to by them, that is has the force of law, even though it never came before Congress. And Phil, I agree with you that the right thing would have been to do here is that the, the court rejected the whole thing and said, Look, this is wrong. It needs to go back to Congress. The language here is ambiguous. It's not very determinative. Congress has to establish something, and you can't let uh, the uh, the, legis uh, the legislative work be done 
by the EPA or by any other executive agency. It must be done by the legislature. And if those people in the legislature are too lazy to do the job that we pay them a oh, six-figure income plus for, if they're too lazy, let's fire them and replace them with legislators who will do the job. And here's the grave danger. A legislature can spill ink on a piece of paper and say, oh, yeah, this is the law and everybody's going to uh, you know, have to submit to the law. Well, that's good, well, good and fine because, okay, there's a federal register. You can go and read the law that you're subject to and you know where you stand. But once you get an administrative agency making law, such as the EPA, nobody knows where. They, and in fact, in this particular case, the EPA changed its mind several times. I think there was at least three or four iterations of how it was going to rule on this issue, which means a company scratching their head is like, OK, we complied the first set of rules and, you know, the EPA, OK, and all of a sudden, we got the rug pulled out from under us. And no, 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 there's a whole new set of rules. And, ah, and there's a third set of rules. You don't have any stability. You have, <laughs> basically, you've got nothing fixed at all because there could be an administrative change in the EPA. You know, a, a new EPA director comes in and fires a bunch of people. And all of a sudden, they change all the rules. And it's like, what's going on here? The average citizen, in this case, the, the average company, has no way to deal with that. You have arbitrary government. You have uh, rulemaking and lawmaking being done from a body that is not accountable to the people, like the legislature. That's why our founders wisely said all legislative powers here and granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, not in any branch of the any uh, agency of the executive branch like the EPA. And perhaps the, the biggest uh, illustration of why that that is such a dangerous thing to allow these administrative agencies to begin, you know, making their own rules and coming up with their own conclusions is uh, the IRS. When you look at the IRS code, it's so voluminous, enormous. It's beyond any one person's capability of comprehending it all, which is why it has been shown. People have done a test. They've called into the IRS and asked a specific question about some detail, and they've got one answer. And then they call back later to get somebody else, and they've got a very different answer. Same agency. It can't give you a straight answer about what could send you to prison if uh, if you fill out the form wrong and that sort of thing. So we're in grave danger when we have administrative agencies untethered from the legislative process, able to make law, able to enforce this law that they made up, and able to even put you in prison for this law that they made up that Congress never voted on, which again is why our founders we're protecting our God-given rights, which says all legislative powers here and granted shall be vested in a Congress, not in the EPA, not in the IRS, not in the executive branch, but in Congress and Congress alone. So the failure here of the court, I think, in this, in this case, Chevron, was that the court failed to do their duty to protect we, the citizens, from this administrative monster that we've got going on in our country, where administrative law is being made. In the administrative state, it's non-delegated powers, and they're giving the court here is giving special deference uh, to a decision made by one of these agencies and not made by our legislature. And so the executive control over these agencies means that you're not going to have procedural rights of due process like you would have in the judiciary. There's no jury to to weigh in, no jury of your peers to weigh in in an administrative court setting. You know, your peers have nothing to do with that court. They, there's, it, it's judge, jury, and executioner, all of one person there behind the bench. 
And that lawyer really behind the bench is not in the judicial branch at all. He's in the executive branch and he's beholden to his bosses. And so he wants to advance in his career. Well, he's obviously not going to do what's good for the citizen and protect the citizen or the company's God-given rights. He's going to do that which is going to advance his own career. He is certainly not an independent uh, arbitrator of what's taking place. So this is a very dangerous opinion. And to to quote Justice Stevens in his opinion, he said this, when a court reviews an agency's construction of the statute which it administers, it is confronted with two questions. First, always, is the question whether Congress has directly spoken to the precise question at issue. And he goes on to say, yes, if Congress is clear, if there's no ambiguity, end of case. We, we, know, we know the answer to that. The real problem is when Congress has left, as he says, left a gap for the agency to fill. And here's the problem. If Congress left the gap in the legislation for the agency to fill, the job of the court is to send it back to Congress and say, you boys do your job. You failed. You left the gap here. Uh, and we're not allowing you to uh, delegate authority to this agency of the executive branch to make law. You cannot allow them to make law. But that's exactly what the Supreme Court Chevron uh, and the deference uh, as a result has done. And uh, Chevron, uh, the decision itself, judges, it says, are not experts in the field and are not part of either political branch of government courts. They must, in some cases, reconcile competing political interests, but not on the basis of the judge's personal policy preferences. In contrast, an agency to which Congress has delegated policymaking responsibilities may, within the limits of that delegation, properly rely upon the incumbent administration's view of wise policy to inform its judgments. While agencies are not directly accountable to the people, yes, yes, uh, my commentary here, yes, and that's the problem. Agencies are not directly accountable to the people. Therefore, the courts are to rein them in and prevent them from actually going about making law. But he defends his position and says, while agencies are not directly accountable to the people, the chief executive is. And it is entirely appropriate for this political branch of the government to make such policy choices. Wrong. I believe he's dead wrong in uh, this. Now, the impact of this uh, Chevron case, uh, one uh, one professor has said this. Uh, actually, here's here's a quotation of uh, John Paul Stevens uh, regarding John Paul Stevens by Professor Errol Mendiger. He called the Chevron decision perhaps the most frequently cited decision in modern American administrative law. Another professor, Thomas Merrill, uh, Northwestern Law Review Symposium, he said this. John Paul Stevens wrote that Chevron was arguably Justice Stevens's most famous decision. So this has had an impact widely across our country because we have so many administrative agencies. You can name the alphabet soup, you know, FBI, IRS, EPA, and just a long list, OSHA, a long list of these administrative agencies that go around acting like they are the legislature when they are not, and they need to be reined in. Even the U.S. Department of Justice's website has said this, Chevron is one of the most influential administrative law cases decided by the Supreme Court in the last past half century. Chevron has become one of the most cited cases on basic standards of review of agents, agency statutory interpretation. So sadly to say, this has kind of become the standard. 
and people rather than, uh, in, in the court saying this needs to go back and the legislature, Congress needs to either amend this law, write a brand new law, be more specific, don't be ambiguous, don't leave it up to the agency. So we have a failure, a twofold failure going, actually you say a threefold failure. Because we have a failure on the part of the legislature to actually do their job of making the law so clear that no one will make a mistake. Then you got the uh, the agencies, which are a part of the executive branch, a failure on their part to restrain themselves when they're handed essentially this grant of power by the courts and by the legislature. It would be good if we had people with some restraint in the EPA or any of the other agencies who would say, wait a minute. If it's not clear from Congress, we need to go back and ask Congress to clarify. No, no, no. People don't do that because they long for power. And if they've got the opportunity to grab power, that's exactly what they do. And so rather than saying, we can't do this because really the Constitution does not permit us to do this because we'd be making law. And we know that all legislative powers here and granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, not in the EPA, not in the IRS, not in any alphabet soup uh, of agencies. And uh, when we look at uh, what uh, has happened since then, it's interesting to see that this became an issue. Chevron became an issue uh, in Judge Neil Gorsuch uh, becoming a justice. And Gorsuch is pushing back. And so that's an encouragement that we have some pushback taking place regarding that. And he, he said in uh, August 23, 2016, what would happen in a world without Chevron, you know, without this decision? If this Goliath of modern administrative law were to fall, surely Congress could and would continue to pass statutes for executive agencies to enforce. And just as surely agencies could and would continue to offer guidance on how they intend to enforce these statutes. In other words, he says guidance, they're not making a law, just guidance. The only difference would be that is if we got rid of Chevron would be that courts would then fulfill their duty to exercise their independent judgment about what the law is. Of course, courts could and would consult agency views and apply the agency's interpretation when it accords with the best reading of a statute. But de novo judicial review of the law's meaning would limit the ability of an agency to alter and amend existing law. It would avoid the due process and equal protection problems of the kind documented in our decisions. It would promote reliance interests by allowing citizens to organize their affairs with some assurance that the rug will not be pulled out from under them tomorrow, the next day or after the next election. And, and an agency's recourse for a judicial declaration of the law's meaning that it dislikes would be precisely the recourse the Constitution prescribes, an appeal to higher judicial authority or to a new law enacted consistent with bicameralism and presentment. We managed to live with the administrative state before Chevron. We could do it again. But it's simply, it seems to me that it would be uh, that in a world without Chevron, little would change. So he's arguing, and I believe he's correct in arguing that we made it a, a huge mistake in allowing these administrative agencies the kind of lawmaking power that Chevron goes on to uh, affirm that, uh, giving them deference that is higher consideration in the court. Uh, than either the company brought into or the individual brought into court uh, having to deal with that agency. Well, Micah, give us your thoughts here on the Chevron. I'm always fascinated to hear what an attorney would have to say about this uh, this ruling and, and what, what its meaning is. Thanks, Pastor Whitney. You mentioned that you can't get a straight answer from an agency making these quote-unquote laws. 
and could very well throw you into prison for violating one of these quote-unquote laws. You named some of the alphabet soup agencies, but I noticed that you may have left one of them out, and this would be the agency that I deal with most frequently, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, most commonly referred to as the ATF. The fact that these agencies can essentially make laws is extremely problematic. We could, of course, talk about, from a policy standpoint, whether these people who are unelected should be granted this authority to make law. The Supreme Court in the Chevron case seems to address this in part in its discussion, reasoning, quote, While agencies are not directly accountable to the people, the chief executive is, and it is entirely appropriate for this political branch of government to make such policy choices, resolving the competing interests which Congress itself either inadvertently did not resolve, or intentionally left to be resolved by the agency charged with the administration of the statute in light of everyday realities. End quote. I'm sure this doesn't make any of us feel any better about it, but that's the court's counter. The president was elected, and if you don't like the way the regulations are being written, elect a new president in four years, and then the regulations might change. But that just introduces a whole host of other problems. That's not the way this is supposed to work. Our government, through our constitution, is not set up to elect a president who in turn, through the executive, will make a bunch of laws. Last I checked, the president, the executive, signs bills into law. Bills that were passed by Congress, both the House and the Senate. You know, people often say, well, they have to create regulations because Congress can never get anything done. Have they ever thought that maybe making more and more laws isn't supposed to be easy? You know, remember when the Founding Fathers thought it fit to include in our Constitution that Congress, the federal legislature, only has specific enumerated powers? Maybe it would be a good thing to only have laws that our elected representatives could agree upon. Because if they can't agree upon something, maybe it doesn't need to be done that badly. Maybe the constituents would vote them out and put someone else in who would agree if that is truly the will of the people. Instead, we get to choose one guy who's more popular every four years, and then we get a dramatic swing and a ton of laws. I saw an article that stated that from 1996 to 2016, there was a ratio of 27 rules to every one law. That's a tremendous amount. So now you have 100,000 regulations and nobody could ever possibly know all of them. And we learned specifically from Chevron that many of them are the result of laws that were intentionally left vague by Congress. While the executive is responsible for enforcing the law, that is entirely different than making the law. You could argue that the regulations are just the way these agencies indicate how they will be enforcing a particular law, but that is not reality. I find it interesting that Pastor Whitney suggested the court should have sent it back to Congress. You know, the court didn't seem to want any part of this, and it didn't really seem to cross their mind. Instead, they highlighted that agencies responsible for administering legislation must do so in the context of, quote, implementing policy decisions in a technical and complex arena. The court further noted, quote, judges are not experts in the field and are not part of either political branch of the government. It's almost as if they decided better them than us without considering whether Congress kicking the can down the road is a legitimate course of action. 
possibly most maddening for me in my practice, the court addressed the argument that because the agency is flip-flopped on the position that it would not be legitimate. The court noted, quote, the fact that the agency has from time to time changed its interpretation of the term source does not, as respondents argue, lead us to conclude that no deference should be accorded the agency's interpretation of the statute. An initial agency interpretation is not instantly carved in stone. On the contrary, the agency, to engage in informed rulemaking, must consider varying interpretations and the wisdom of its policy on a continuing basis. End quote. This is how people are impacted in my practice. The ATF, interpreting the National Firearms Act and the Gun Control Act, has pivoted countless times on specific issues. Take the issue with AR pistols and stabilizing braces, for example. This is a brace that you would put on an AR pistol that could assist someone in shooting what is a very large pistol by providing stability. Some people have put the brace up to their shoulder the way you would a stock. The problem is that under the National Firearms Act, a rifle is a weapon designed or redesigned, made or remade, and intended to be fired from the shoulder. If a rifle has a barrel length less than 16 inches or overall length less than 26 inches, it is regulated under the NFA. ATF first said, even if you were to put this brace on your shoulder, you still have not converted it into a rifle. In 2015, they changed their mind and said if you put it up to your shoulder, now you've redesigned or remade the firearm to be intended to be fired from the shoulder. So you can make a short-barreled rifle by putting it up to your shoulder is what they were saying. Can you change it back by taking it off your shoulder? Well, realizing how ridiculous this was, they again reversed course, saying that firing it from the shoulder does not reclassify the firearm, but there are things you can do to a brace by modifying it that would make your firearm a rifle. Then, under the Biden administration, the ATF proposed a new points system scorecard that would determine whether your pistol is actually a rifle, and we're expecting a final rule to be published sometime this month. Without any change in law, people will have to destroy, modify, surrender, or register firearms that required no such action when lawfully purchased. You could argue that the regulations just the way those agencies indicate how they'll be enforcing a particular law, but that is not reality. It is them turning the law into what they want it to be. In baseball, we all learned from the time we were in Little League that the tie goes to the runner. Now, in reality, that's not exactly true. The rule actually says, quote, a runner acquires the right to an unoccupied base when he touches it before he was out. Major League umpire Tim McClelland has described it by saying, the only thing you can do is go by whether or not he beat the ball. If he did, then he is safe. That does not sound like tie goes to the runner. When we're looking at the decision in Chevron, it feels an awful lot like tie goes to the runner. We have an agency who is exercising authority it shouldn't even have in the first place, getting the benefit of the doubt based upon a rule that doesn't exist. I suppose if you say something enough times, it becomes true, even if there's no legitimate reason. Hey, thank you so much, Mike. It's, again, always a blessing to hear your thoughts on, on what uh, these Supreme Court, these dirty dozen cases uh, are like. Phil, what other thoughts do you have about this case? Well, as the realm of federal jurisdiction it, it, um, expands, uh, and I'm, I'm 
talking about all all the uh, the branches. The difficulty of implementing a fair judiciary uh, diminishes and becomes more arbitrary. Um, certainly, the legislatures will claim that they are not lazy. Um, they probably put in excessive hours, but they are working hard to undermine the Constitution. Therein lies the problem. And really, with uh, Chevron USA versus versus uh, the uh, Natural Resources uh, Defense Council, what we're dealing with here is a relatively minor problem. Uh, and I know it's a major problem, uh, uh, but it's still relatively minor by comparison with the other problem, which is that the Congress is passing uh, legislation that is clearly unconstitutional. So this kind of backs you into this area of, well, now now that we've created this mess, how are we going to administer it? And <clears throat> instead of correcting the problem, it seems that Chevron USA uh, dug the hole deeper. Uh, yeah, and I would agree. And that's the, the problem of allowing our federal government to take so many things under its powers, uh, claiming that it has these powers. When we look back to our founder's design, it was pretty clear. James Madison, usually called the father of our constitution in, in Federalist 45, said that there's very limited delegated enumerated powers. We've given a small group of powers to the federal government. And those powers primarily deal with the external issues of a nation, like making war or peace and concluding treaties and so forth and uh, trade line, all those sorts of things that are external to the nation are the only things really that we have granted to the federal government. Now, there's some internal things, but they're uh, very limited, like post offices and post roads and, uh, you know, and like uh, regulating trade between the states in, in interstate commerce. And so, so a very limited list. But the majority of the powers, Madison argues, are in the hands of the state. That is, the federal government has few defined, limited, delegated, enumerated powers. The states have large ranging and, and therefore the, the powers that deal with most with our life, our liberty, our property, the things that relate to us on a daily basis as citizens. And we could say uh, to companies like the Chevron and so forth, the state government. And then the state legislature and the state courts should be the ones primarily dealing with those issues. It's not in the jurisdiction of the federal government. And our founders were wise in doing that because they knew that, hey, you know, states vary greatly from one another. You know, compare Florida with Alaska, huge differences between those. And so each of those states may meet, need to make a number of decisions that are going to be for the best interest of their people and protecting the God-given rights of their people that – vary based on a number of things, geography being one of them, temperature, climate, uh, you know, the number of citizens they have to deal with. All of that will vary from state to state, and it's better leaving the decision to the state legislature regarding those issues that most closely relate to the lives of the people and to the lives of the businesses in, in that state than to coordinate everything together in Washington, D.C., and force a, you know, one-size-fits-all kind of policy over all, uh, all the states in the union. 
But clearly, that has not been the direction our nation has been going for well over 100 years at this point in time. Uh, We've been going to collect more and more power in Washington, D.C., more regulatory control of, well, every aspect of our life. You know, what vitamins can you uh, ingest? Why should that be a federal decision and not a decision on the part of the states? Uh, You know, in this case with EPA and so forth, how do you regulate uh, the output in terms of pollution of uh, of the company and how, you know, that should be left better to the state governments. Uh, because the state governments being more responsive to the people and closer to the people are going to do better job than the federal government at defending the God-given rights of uh, we, the people. Which is, by the way, the only reason our founder said the only reason civil government exists is to protect and defend our God-given rights. And we find that most of what federal and often state and local governments are doing is spending our taxpayer dollars on things that have nothing to do with defending our God-given rights. And that leaves us in a mess where we are daily uh, losing our our liberties to an ever-growing gargantuan government. You know, if if we um, stuck to the original federal mission, all branches of the government, which would include legislative, executive, and judicial, would have considerably less work to do. Now, Initially, there was concern that there would be so little to do that the legislators might stay away from from Congress altogether for years at a time. And so there is a requirement that Congress meet at least once a year. Um, Now, I think the the greater concern is that Congress will meet. And it was it H.L. Mencken who said, uh, beware, Congress is meeting, hold on to your wallet or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And when, when we see a government that is more interested in its own self-preservation than in protecting our God-given rights, you know that you're moving rapidly towards tyranny. Because when it's in the government's best interest to do whatever it is, uh, let's say to take away your guns, you know, why would the government want to take away your guns? Not for the reason they tell you, uh, the reason they say, oh, there's all these bad people out here uh, shooting up other people and you know, the, the danger to your life and, and your property from other people who own guns is greater. And our founder said, no, 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 that's completely backwards. The greatest danger to your life, liberty and your property is not a, uh, an evildoer in society. The greatest danger to your life, liberty and property in the history of the world is human civil governments. Because human civil governments, when they go rogue, then they become tyrannical. Just ask the Chinese, 100 million dead under Mao Zedong, or ask those in the Pol Pot's regime there in Cambodia. Half of the people, one third of the population, murdered by the government. So if you disarm the people, there's just one issue, but that's an illustration of the problem. If you disarm the people, then you open the door wide out to absolute tyranny. Uh, and that's you know where where we appear to be headed, as uh, as those in Washington D.C. instead of backing away, they're marching towards tyranny, taking more and more powers uh, from we the people. Yeah, we should not be surprised by government um, self-preservation. I mean, that should be an absolute rule of nature, and that's part of the natural law. I think that uh, those who have Control over other individuals will never wish to diminish that control for the the good of the people, but will wish to enhance their own power. So uh, I think our our founders 
were very sensitive to that. And yet, surprisingly, there were things that they they failed to do to recognize, you know, the, the intense danger from this principle of government uh, self-preservation, which really is not just preservation. Uh, governments are not satisfied to to uh, remain where they are in terms of, of uh, power. They will constantly try to find ways to enhance their power. And we should recognize the fact that government is an abstraction. It covers um, a number of people who are attempting to exercise control over other people. I mean, it is so rare in the history of the world to find a benign government. Um, I think the Durants tried when they, they created the series, uh, the story of civilization. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, you know, I defy anybody to go through that and find any more than about perhaps a half a dozen uh, administrations, governmental administrations that were benign, if that. Yeah, and what one of the things that we're seeing now, and this is a, a bit of a pivot to what you know has just taken place in the election, but once those in power take control of the electoral process so, so they can steal the election, quite clearly they did that in 2020, and now they've done it in 2022, it becomes evident that because they're in power, they're not going to let go of power. They're going to use every trick in the book, every lie, every steal, every ballot stuffing method. They're going to do anything they can to stay in power. And then you have a, a government that is no longer representative at all. In fact, a government that uh, is feeding on its own uh, own destruction. So I don't know what it will take for the American people to fully wake up to what is, has transpired here. But we see in this election fraud and the theft, both the, the 2020 as now and now the 2022, we see a, another go round of that, that if those people in power who have committed these crimes are not brought to justice, we're seeing and we're, we're visibly seeing the end of our constitutional republic. Do you think that that's the, uh, the case? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I agree with you about the uh, the voting corruption. Uh, and the way this is being handled right now by the opposition is that uh, we are um, voting deniers. You know, we're we're denying the the uh, uh, the true results of these elections in 2020 and 2022. Well, I'll tell you what, folks, anybody who wants to call me a denier can go, first of all, to the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. They can look at uh, the Article 7, uh, Section 14 uh, and 15, uh, which talk about uh, elections. And they can, they can look at what the requirements are according to the Constitution. And then they can look at Pennsylvania Act 77. They can read it through word by word and determined for themselves that this is an outrageous violation of the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, which opened up the doors for immense fraud. I mean, let's face it. This is a matter of what they call habeas corpus, right? Yeah. If you're going to vote, produce the body. <laughs> and there's plenty of dead bodies voting and there's plenty of people who've moved out of the state voting and on and on the list goes of the, the kind of crimes that have been committed in both 2020 and uh, 2022. And by the way, it's probable that these things have been done earlier than, than those dates, those two elections we're talking about. It's just that they've been well covered up. 
It's that in those two elections, 2020 and 2022, the fraud was so obvious and so abundant across the country, some states being worse than others. And uh, the stealing and the, the packing, uh, you know, ballot boxes, all that kind of stuff. We know the evidence is there. It's now as if they're no longer hiding the fraud, which means they must be pretty confident must be pretty confident that they could continue in this fraud and they could just continue to rub it in our faces. But the only thing that's going to change that is if the American people rise up and say, no way, we will not tolerate this fraud. And I appreciate what's happening in Brazil. I know that mainstream media is not reporting on it at all, but the people of Brazil have declared their election a fraud and that uh, either it has to be redone or the military needs to step in. Oh, who knows what's going to happen there? But the people of Brazil are not laying down and just taking this passively. And my prayer is that the people of America, likewise, would uh, rise up and say, no, we see a fraudulent election. And unless we have proof, we tried this here in Maryland, we asked for a double check. That is, once the counts in 04 was done, that there would be the next day a hand count, paper ballot, hand counted, by a number of different parties, everybody represented there, and we wanted to check at the precinct level if the numbers that were determined by the hand count were the same as the numbers determined by the machines. We're just trying to prove that the machines aren't lying. Well, the Lamone, who's the head of the Board of Elections here in Maryland, said, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> what do they have to hide, you know? Well, it's amazing, uh you know, the opposition was on board with this idea of, of corrupt elections. And they talked about, I think it was the 2016 uh, election where um, there was undue Russian influence. Well, I, it seems to me that that uh, a one live Russian has less impact on our elections than 10 dead Chicagoans. <laughs> That's right. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom areas of WFYL. We invite you to join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m., on WFYL.